Welcome back, readers. This is Jason from Reading My Black Podcast. I'm recording live from the Goat House here in Montgomery, Alabama, and it's glad to be back. I know that we have not had a chance to sit down and read for a while, and I have been sitting on a buttload of content, and I'm ready to um, showcase it to the world. Uh, I've been really busy, guys, and I just want to apologize for not being able to record and not being able to reach out uh, to our listeners. Uh, But I'm back, and uh, we have some really good stuff lined up for you for the next couple of months. Uh, Just to give you guys a background of what's been going on, as you guys know, I was uh, working as a re-enfranchisement outreach fellow at the Alabama Voting Rights Project, helping people with felony convictions restore their voting rights here in the Black Belt of Alabama. I have now become a resident of Montgomery, Alabama, and I recently just got finished working on the Stephen Reed for Mayor campaign as a volunteer recruiter and trainer and a field organizer and we helped elect Stephen Reed as the first African-American mayor in the city of Montgomery's 200 year history. It has been truly transformative what we've been able to do here in the city of Montgomery. It was you know an honor to be a part of such a campaign but now it's back to the books. Um, As you guys know also I'm working at Alabama State now working in a historically black college and university has been truly an honor um, to be able to connect with so many students and find out so many students actually want to read has reinvigorated my passion for college while black so college while black will be coming back soon within the next calendar year and uh, we're getting ready to get started on some new stuff reading with some new students and discussing some new topics but today we're here to talk about bossy ikpi um, i had a chance to sit down and talk to bossy Uh, this week and we had a wonderful conversation about her book I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying which really talks about and dwells into her battle and her struggle in everyday life of living with bipolar 2 disorder. I had a chance to uh, discuss my own mental health struggles uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Uh, So this will be a podcast conversation that is very personal um, it's very intimate, uh, talks a lot about my own personal struggles with my mental health. Um, so before you go into listening to this, um, I'm very sensitive about the things that I've been through. Um, but I hope that me sharing these stories encourages you to be more honest and be more open um, with the people around you of what you're struggling with. And most importantly, uh, to go seek professional help um, if you need it. Um, I'm a big advocate for mental health, which is one of the reasons why we read this book. Um, And I have just really, really enjoyed uh, sticking my nose into this very, very good read. Um, It is honest, it is telling, and it is gripping. um, And it is beautifully written by a person like Bossy. Um, We do not deserve Bossy. Um, By the end of this, uh, you will feel like Bossy is your sister because she feels like she's my sister. Um, after this and um, it was just really a pleasure to sit down and talk to her so let's get into you know the interview and the conversation with her and um, we'll talk about some more stuff afterwards about what's next what will be the next book and um, we'll see you guys after the interview all right welcome readers Uh, this is Jason and this is Reading While Black podcast. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be back on air. I know it has been a while. I know you guys have been like, 
where is Jason and these books? He has not been reading. Well, I have been busy um, because I am an adult who has to pay bills <laughs> and being an adult is absolutely trash. Uh, but I had a chance to, uh, I was given a book uh, by my oldest brother, Patrick, um, on my birthday weekend in Atlanta. And it was this great, great, great book uh, that I just had this wonderful time uh, reading. And I have the pleasure of having the author of that book um, with us today. Um, she is a Nigerian American writer, ex-poet, constant mental health advocate, underachieving overachiever, that's a good one, <laughs> and a memoir procrastinator. And she lives in Maryland uh, with her soccer superstar son. Please welcome to Reading While Black, Miss Bossy Iku. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Happy to uh, be here. Like, so, uh, first thing I have to say is, uh, didn't know that you and my brothers were friends. Uh, he's one of my best friends in the world. Patrick is uh, everything. <laughs> he's he's friends with everybody. Uh, yeah. I like to say that I'm famous adjacent because uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's uh, growing up around Patrick. You meet these random people, um, and you just don't know that they're famous. Uh, <laughs> like I remember one day we were sitting in a room and you know in post-production for Noah's Ark and he was like this lady walks in and she's helping us out with music and I don't know that it's Beyonce's old manager and I'm like what wow. <laughs> or you know back when he was working at Edmonds Entertainment and you know you saw Tracy and Babyface Edmonds when they were still married at the time and, um, and when you're a kid I guess when you're a kid you don't understand these things like we're years and years apart i'm not supposed to say how many years because uh, he would kill me uh but first of all i am so happy that he gave me this book because as a person who is a mental health advocate myself and i am a person who has my own struggles with mental health dealing with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder this has been a revelation for me to read because this is exactly how i feel <laughs> about what i'm dealing with most of the time <laughs> Um, and it's there's no way for me to really articulate that to my family members and to my friends and usually only to my therapist. Uh, and especially within the last year of me really confronting my own mental health, like 2018 to 2019 was just that was my time where I was like, OK, so that's what this is <laughs> like. OK, I'm depressed. OK, so yeah. I, or, you know, I always knew I had PTSD, but I never talked to anyone about it. I went to groups, you know, group chats about it, you know, on campus when I was in college, but I wasn't really getting the help that I needed or the medication that I needed. Um, so it was, you know, this was, like I said, it was just a revelation to read this book because I was like, oh, child. <laughs> so <it's> like... <laughs> like this is it. Um, like, I, I listened. I listened, and I read it. So I love. People tell me I'm weird, but I like to listen to the book while I read the book, if it's possible. And I love it when the author is actually reading the book. The only time I've liked someone not reading the book was Gucci Mane's book. I don't remember who was reading it, but it read like a movie, <laughs> and. 
Uh, I mean, because Gucci Man's Life is a movie. But um, Bossy, like everything that you have said, and it's just, whew, I don't know where to begin. So just take me through the writing process. Just um, how did you begin with this? Um, well, first of all, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's still very surreal for me to have a book out in the world. Um, it's been <laughs> alleged and, you know, forthcoming for so long that, that it's still something I'm getting used to. Um, but the process was that I was writing a very different book. Um, I was going through, and I've told this story several times, but I, I was going through one of the worst depressive episodes of my life in 2016. Um, and I realized, I realize now actually that I have been in, in varying stages of depression for at least 10 years. So when mm -hmm. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't necessarily okay. I just wasn't as depressed as I recognized. And I would use that time um, to do all the things that I needed to do and convince myself that I was okay. But I had been hospitalized for the second time in 2010. And, you know, I ran away to Nigeria under the auspice of, of, of you know, I'm going to work. I'm going to work in television in Nigeria. It's a booming industry. But I was really just running away. And I recognize that now. I didn't at the time. Um, came back from Nigeria and I felt like I had failed completely. Um, all the things that I was grasping at in order to keep me present and keep me in the world had just shattered. And I came back completely, not only as though I failed in Nigeria, but also that I'd lost four, three or four years of my life chasing this thing that I didn't, you know, I didn't end up catching. Um, and I fell into a, a, a deep depression and it just got worse and worse and worse. And usually I'm able to talk myself out of it. Usually I'm able to, to, to figure out a way, the meds. I, 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 as soon as I got home, I found a therapist, but I found myself spiraling even worse. And I decided that I was done. I, I told myself after the second hospitalization that I wasn't going to be a repeat offender. I'm not going to be one of those people who spends, you know, more time in the hospital than out. I wasn't going to be 14, 15 times in the hospital. Two was it. And I didn't want to go back. And um, I was finished. I was exhausted. I had rationalized all of the things that I needed to. I processed. I was slowly preparing my family. There's a there's an um, an essay towards the end of the book. I think it is the end of the book. Well, I, I haven't read the book, but towards the end of the book, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read it. Um, but the the something about preparing my family and friends for a goodbye and 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 and, and just sort of rationalizing. And I wrote that in that moment when I was trying to. To, to, to tell myself that it was okay, that I did the best that I could, that I tried the best as I, as I could to do this, and I just couldn't anymore. And I've had friends who have made similar decisions, who have um, decided that they couldn't do it anymore. And I don't ever judge people for that. I think that that's a, a reasonable uh, response to that kind of exhaustion, right? And I would never ask someone to know stay and suffer because I need you to be here. I, I, I won't do that. I find other ways to have that conversation with people. Um, but I knew that I wanted people to understand what was happening. I wanted them to see how much of a struggle it has been and what happens in my mind um, when I say I can't sleep, when I say I couldn't eat, when I say that I can't move. I want people to know what that feels like from the inside out so that 
if anything were to happen to me, there would be no questions. There wouldn't be just one note that says, I'm sorry, I can do it. I love you. Bye. I wanted it to be full, but that was something that I was doing privately. I also, as a writer, I wanted the last thing I did to be a book and, but I wanted the book to, 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 because of the whole advocate label, I wanted it to be like this, you know, I don't know what I wanted it to be now that I think about it, but it was just like this inspiring shit or motivational or, or something mm. like I couldn't do it, but you could, that kind of like dumb stuff. And I couldn't, I couldn't write it because I was going through the other stuff. And, um, right. but I didn't know if it was, if, if, if it was too much for people, you know what I mean? I didn't want to be too much for people. I didn't want to leave people feeling defeated. Um, but I, 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 I gave myself space for this journey okay, fine. I'll find an agent. Found one. All right. Um, I'll, I'll, they'll sell the book. Oh crap. They sold it. All this stuff happened so quickly. I thought it'd be like months and months and months. Um, but it all happened within like six weeks of me deciding to do it, finding an agent, selling the book. It happened so quickly. Um, and during that time, the book that we sold is not the book that I wrote. And thank God, the editor that I had at Harper Perennial, Erin, who's amazing, when she saw how much I was struggling to write the book that they sold, that, that, that she bought, she said, what do you feel is happening with you? Mm. Like, write all that stuff down and we'll figure it out. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about anything. We'll figure it out. So once she gave me that room, I kind of backed up a little bit and looked at all these things. And, I, and another thing too is like part of the struggle was that I put so much pressure on myself. Um, I put so much pressure on myself that I couldn't even process fully for myself what I was doing and why. I was trying to write the book and edit the book and review the book and, you know, all at the exact same time. Um, and and I, 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 I just felt completely blocked. And I went back to these other notes that I was writing to my friends and my family. And I looked at it and I was like, what kind of book could I write if I had complete freedom? If I, was, if I wasn't tied to anybody's perception or reception of the book, what would I do? And one of the first essay or one of the first stories I wrote was the one about one of the ex-boyfriends. I don't know which one. Um, and I wrote it in like second person, right? And I wrote it in a way that put me outside of the, of the story instead of being part of it. So I was able to kind of look at it from a different perspective. And once I opened that up, I started writing from different perspectives. I started giving myself permission to fall in and out of point of view, sometimes tense. Like my, my editor and I had like arguments about, like you said is here, but then you said was over here. I was like, yeah, because that's the way my mind works. My mind has no sense of like when time and place is um, chronologically. And I need to be able to tell it that way. And she just trusted. And um, it was a very long answer to a short question, but um, no, it's, but no, once it's I freed, yeah, once I freed myself from all the constraints that came with what I thought books were supposed to be, what I thought memoir was supposed to be, what I thought a life story was look like. Once I did that, I was able to just have this pour out of me. And, you know, it was 2016 is when we signed the contract. I'll say 2017 is when I started writing the book. Um, but it wasn't until last summer, last August, um, when I just kind of looked at it and, and, and just cut things up and put things and rearranged it. And, um, and so that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that is, that's beautiful. I mean, for me, 
uh, and I'm glad you have something to drink because I just went and got some whiskey. Uh, <laughs> water. <laughs> um, whiskey and Red Bull. Uh, but for me, at it's, this hour, it's five o'clock somewhere in there. Uh, Man. Okay. Uh, I mean, for me, it's been so like reading it in that part where you were saying, especially that excerpt where you're saying, you know well, maybe this will help somebody else. And that's the way I used to really think about, like, talking about my PTSD. I'd be like, you know, let me talk to some other people who are going through this because there are so many different forms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's so many forms, like, of people, like, in people that are dealing with depression. And I was like, let me write it down. The one thing I really did appreciate the most is that it's written like a journal. <laughs> um, yeah. And I love that it's time, that it's, date and time like time stamp on everything like that was the first thing I kind of realized um after you told your family story um like everything like had a place and I'm a Virgo so I'm like big on everything having a place (laughs) (laughs) uh but it was just for me like that feeling of I think what's the word that I'm looking for if I could put in put it into words it was you know when you're talking about um you know suicide like I've been there I was in Afghanistan uh specifically and it was I want to say it was Christmas time and I remember it like it was yesterday just because we were I was like butting heads with my uh superior and I just didn't really ever really want to be there and I just kept thinking about the fact that I was like, Jason, you didn't have to come here. Like, you were on the list to come here, but they asked you when you were in Texas and it was 110 degrees outside. Did you really want to go? And your stupid ass said yes. Why the fuck <laughs> did you come to this stupid country? Like, where these people, you don't know any of these people. You don't trust any of the people that are around you in your unit, even though you're supposed to, and you don't want to be here. And it's not a sense of that you hate the people because you're Islamophobic. You just don't want to be there. Like at first I thought like, am I a bigot? Cause I don't want to be here because this is a beautiful country. And it was like, no, I don't want to be here because I don't even know. Like I started contemplating, why did I join the military? I just wanted to go to college for free. Like yeah. now, I now I'm over here, and I'm like, yeah, fuck, right? And there were times I've only been suicidal, I think, before that once, and you know, my stomach was pumped. But it was at this point where I was like, I'm walking around with a loaded weapon, you know, on this military base, and I wow. can end it at any point that I want to. Like I have that power. Um, and it was very conflicting for me and my weapon was taken away from me and you know I'm in the chaplain's office every day and I'm like this isn't therapy like y'all just keeping me away from what I really want to do like fuck y'all like I don't give a fuck about any of this or any of you like in the last parts of the book where you have that sexual encounter and you like I just want some weight on top of me like yeah I felt that because there were so many times where I was like, fuck this. Like I was in a physical relationship with somebody overseas and I was like 
didn't really care. I, rem I remember telling her, I was like, I don't care if you have a kid. I don't care if you're married. I don't care if your husband died last year yeah. or whatever the fuck. I just want you to fuck me because yeah. I, I've already been fucked by Uncle Sam. Like, so it can't get much worse than this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was like trying to get away from that was it was so hard and then when I came home it was the only thing I could think about when I got off the plane was let me rush through this process <laughs> like of demobbing because demobilization is a week and then you can go home and I was a reservist and I think going back to the civilian world I was like I just can't wait to get go back to the civilian world and my mom was like you should take a break and I was like fuck no I'm going to pack all of my shit, which is what I did. And I went straight back to college a week after I got back from Afghanistan. That was the yeah. worst decision of my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, I mean, I don't want to keep talking because I want you to talk. <laughs> but I guess, <laughs> but I guess for me, it's just like, I remember at one point I was on campus and I almost fought the entire basketball team because somebody said something to me stupid. And one of my RAs was like, yo, is something wrong? And I was like, what do you mean is something wrong? And they were like, something is not right. <laughs> like, yeah. have you talked to somebody, you know, because it doesn't seem like you're here. Like, it seems like you're still somewhere else and they didn't know where that somewhere else was and I knew that that I think my mind was still mentally in this war zone and it was in a war zone with itself and I yeah. don't I, you know you talk a lot about bipolar too um th this is something that you live with and I don't know whether it feels like a war inside your head um but I just wanted you to expound on that yeah, I mean, it's a chaos. Um, it's definitely chaotic. One of the, the ways um, every time I've had these episodic, either, you know, the, the hypomania or the depression, the ways that I knew that I was better um, when it came to the medication and the therapy and the mindfulness training was that my brain would be quiet. Like all of a sudden, mm. all of these sounds and noises. And, and it's difficult because when I say voices, people always take it to the far extreme, like a schizophrenic place where you're hearing voices. No, it's, it's your own voice. It's your inner right. monologue. And, it's, and it's, it's telling you things that make you feel um, worse about yourself or, or confirms the things that you're afraid to think out loud or to say out loud. We all have these struggles within us. Like, you know, when you're when you're getting dressed in the morning, you're, 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 you're thinking to yourself, do I wear these pants or these pants? Is this tie? Am I going to wear a tie today? What am I going to for breakfast? Like these are the conversations that people have in their head all the time. So there are always voices in your head. When you're depressed, that voice is upset at you. That voice mm -hmm. is telling you not what you should wear, but how many ways you fucked up in your life. All the, all the memories you've repressed, all the things that you said that you're now not sure whether or not someone took wrong. Now you're obsessed about it because your voice is saying, you know, three years ago you said that thing and she kind of looked at you and I think that she's been upset with you ever since. And that's, you know, that's what happened. So it's a war in that it's a battle with yourself to keep those thoughts at bay. Um, I was fortunate in that 
the ways in which it manifested to me didn't really um didn't really uh cause any outward explosion um mm. they were all very self-contained so internally i was going through it but i didn't i think that had i been more outwardly or demonstratively um aggressive, depressed, all these other things, if I hadn't learned so early how to suppress it and how to keep it inside, um, I probably would have found, gotten help sooner. Um, mm. Because so much of what I was showing outwardly seemed like personality. Like, oh my gosh, she's so bubbly. Mm. Oh my God, she's so talkative. Oh my God, she's so, you know, she just loves, she's always awake. Like being awake was a personality trait for me. Like, like, oh, call Bossy. She's always awake. And I was like, yep, I'm always awake, which is, it's insane. You're not supposed to be awake. awake. You're supposed to be asleep. You're supposed to sleep at some point during the day. It shouldn't be days of you awake or sleeping, you know, 20 minutes there, 30 minutes there. So a lot of it was me fighting myself to keep the thing from showing up, for the, to keep the crazy from showing up and walking in front of me. That was the thing that was always in my mind. I didn't want people to see it. So I worked very hard to make sure people didn't see it. And it was when people started seeing it, when I was on tour, um, you know, when, when I couldn't hide it from people, when people started to point it out to me, that's when I said, okay, I cannot talk myself out of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. I have to do something. And it took a minute for the, thing, for the something to, to present itself. But that, that level of self-preservation that kept me from alcohol, that kept me, I mean, I did drink, you know, far more than a, a person should, but I was also very small. So, you know, two, three drinks in and I was like, oh, I'm done. You know, I didn't, I didn't have, if I had like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Is it stamina? What is it when you can drink a lot of alcohol? Uh, high tolerance. Yeah, if I had a higher tolerance, then I would be an alcoholic, but I, I had a low tolerance. So it worked out. I was afraid of drugs because I was so, um, I felt so out of control anyway, and I didn't want anything that would make me feel more out of control. Um, mm. So I, these little tiny levels of self-preservation would show up, and I would hold on to them, saying, "You could, you could really wild out right now, but the fact that you're not means that there's a part of you that still wants to be present, and there's a part of you that 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 knows that there's something happening with you." It just took a long time for me to actually work out what that was. Ooh, yeah, because I think for me, I think, and I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, and I, I identified with a lot with when you were saying, you know, when you were on tour, because for me, like, especially I work in social justice and like last year, 2018 was a really, really tough time for me, you know, dealing with my depression and, um, especially, um, I don't know if you remember this story. Maybe you saw it on the headlines, but uh, Shakisha Clemens was assaulted in a Waffle House um, in Sarah Land, Alabama, which is in Mobile County. So Sarah Land yeah. was a small town that I grew up right next to in Mobile. Um, and Shakisha actually was uh, a young girl that I went to after school care with as kids. We hadn't seen each other in years. And my ex-girlfriend was the person who showed me the video. We went to the NAACP meeting the same day that she was arrested, which they had a meeting that day. By coincidence, she was she had been bailed out of jail and she was there to speak. Uh, well, her mother spoke because she couldn't speak. Um, 
and I remember sacrificing so much to be a part of this and like working on this. And I remember one of my one of my closest friends ended up being my roommate, Wayne. He was like, Jason, you're giving so much of yourself to this. Like, when's mm. the last time that you slept? Yeah. Like, when's the last time that you ate? You know, when's the last time that you laughed? And yeah. I was like, fuck. And I was like, fuck that. We have to protect this black woman. Like, this black woman yeah. needs, needs protecting. Like, nobody cared about her in that situation. And so I have to care. Yeah. I have to do something. And so in between that, um, my, my then girlfriend broke up with me. We had been together for about two and a half years. And it was funny because I told myself, I'm going to marry this girl after I turn 28, which I would turn 28 last year, mm. um, obviously. And um, I'm going to propose to her in November, our anniversary, and she breaks up with me the night that, um, what was that, that Avengers uh, Infinity War came out. <laughs> so, like, I'm already, like, hyped about this movie. We go see it, and then we get in bed that night. She's like, I want to break up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and um, I'm already working on this case. And I'm better for it because we did need to be a part. Um, we had already, and I've, you know, wrestled with this. But at the time, it was not what I needed. But what I did was instead of, like, seeking therapy, because I didn't do any of that, I would distract myself by pouring myself into other work. And so my work became Shakisha Clippin's case. And it was phenomenal work that we did. We marched in the city of Saraland. We did nonviolent direct action protests. We called for a selective buying campaign. We created alternatives, you know, for people who worked at Waffle House who may be fired because of our protests, you know, to give them options of other places to work. These were all positive things. But I never stopped to check my own mental health. Yeah. And I remember when I finally went to go see a therapist that summer and she told me, who gave you permission to fix people? Like, who told you you could fix somebody who never gave you permission to fix them? Yeah. Especially when you haven't fixed yourself. And I remember I cried <laughs> and it was the ugliest cry. Like I cried like my grandma beat my ass <laughs> and I had, it was a very it was a very familiar cry that I hadn't had in a long time and that cry was like a friend and a hug yeah because for me it was like I and it wasn't just I used to think that this was just my problem with women I I was in relationships with it was you know, these women, you know, were not perfect and I could fix them. But really, it was just me being a little manipulative. Yeah. For, so they could enable my bullshit. Yeah. One. Yeah. And so I could ignore it. So I could always ignore the stuff that I needed to fix. I could ignore my depression. I could ignore my PTSD. And then the moment that they would bring up any of that, you know, in a conflict or to call me out on something, Instead of me saying, you're right, I would react violently because of all of this, quote unquote, love that I poured into them to fix them. Now it's like, how dare you? Like, and I was like, this is not me. Um, and but also I was like, maybe this is me. Like what it like. And so it became a what's wrong with me? Yeah. Like and, you know, my therapist was like, you know, yo, you're 
you're just depressed. Like, and you're dealing with this and like, you need to confront it and you need to call it what it is. Um, like, this isn't just, you know, your PTSD because like, look, I'm a people person that don't like people. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a something I live by. Like I, people think, you know, oh, Jason has this big following on Twitter and Jason has all of these friends and he can talk so much. And I said, I'm just really good at talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, like I majored in strategic communications. Like I know how to move in a room full of vultures, as Jay-Z would like to say. It's something that I purposely learned in college so I could mask my insecurities um, of really being an introvert like in reality when some people thought I was an extrovert. Me and Patrick are completely opposite people. <laughs> uh, but in a lot of ways, we're alike. I used to say Patrick was really introverted, but the older I got, I was like, shit, I'm kind of just as introverted. I'm just better at masking it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, the, almost the exact same way. Once I realized, once I got stabilized and and I, 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 I was talking to my... Um, therapist about a year and some change ago and you know we had worked through so much and I'd gone so far past where I was in 2016 and I was like you know I'm 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 going to the store I'm not like there's not a lot of anxiety around that but every time somebody asks me to hang out I just I don't want to and and I feel like that's something we still need to need to work on and she stopped and she was like have you ever considered that that's your personality you're not somebody who likes to go out. You're not yes. somebody who likes to be. And it never crossed my mind because that was never an option. That was never an option. Yeah. I've been in the quote unquote public eye since I was 15 on Teen Summit. You know, so I've always mm. been able to walk into a room and all the anxiety gets masked by the fact that like you, I can talk. I can. And I, I, I'm also very um, aware of other people's awkwardness. So if I see you being mm. anxious or being awkward, my response is to fill that space so that you become more comfortable. So it's not two of us yes. being awkward. Like if you can't do that for me, I'm going to be the one who do it, who does it. So I always walk in with like this, you know, um, this, this idea that if someone is, 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 is nervous, especially, you know, people get kind of, not only say starstruck, but you, you're, your brother's Patrick, you can poke. So you know how people are around him sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and so you have to, I, I don't want people to feel that discomfort because it's going to make me just more uncomfortable. So I feel in that space. And for the longest time, I was like, I am not, I am not this outgoing. I really, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. No, I prefer like, to be quiet and sit and, and sit and sit by myself. And I think that's like in the, this is so, I, I don't, and I don't want people who listen to this because people who listen to this know my ex-girlfriend. I just want to say, first off, mm. me and Chastity are really good friends now <laughs> before I say what I'm going to say. And there's nothing bad, mm. but uh, she is a people person. She grew up in a household where family was everything, right? And people were always in her house and it always sounded like the sound of pitter-patter of feet and, you know, Black people cackling which yeah. I think is one of the greatest sounds ever. Yeah. Um, but just black joy inside of a household. But I was not a person who really grew up in that. And I was like, when we dated and we lived together, you know, the one thing that I would say was, um, like, people would come over. And one of my friends who 
like would come over a lot now lives in Montgomery with us and I would disappear I would go in the back of the house and I would go lay in the bed and I would get on Twitter and she'd come back there and she'd be like why the fuck are you in the bed right now like we have people in our house and I'm like oh I'll be back in a second but I would never come back yeah uh and it was because I really don't want these niggas in my house. <laughs> like, it's no offense. Like, I love them. Like, it's it's scandal night and we got bottles of wine open. And yeah. I want to know what, you know, I want to know if Fitz and Olivia are going to make it. But in reality, I just want to be online. Like, I found myself, like, I've been on Twitter now for 10 years. And I tell people all the time, I said, my, I said, our grandparents and our parents lied to us. They said, don't talk to people on the internet. We were lied to. Yeah. Like, <laughs> because it is so easy to talk to somebody that don't owe you shit, that doesn't know you from a can of fucking pain. Like, I feel, I don't know why I feel more comfortable sometimes in spaces talking and engaging with people that I barely know, that I don't know what will happen to them in the next day or not than actually interacting with people that I see every day. And like that became my solace, like to avoid it. And I like, and I kind of came to like that chicken kind of came to roost for with me with, with my therapist. Like when I moved to shout out to my old job because they offer free therapy. Like anybody mm-hmm. wants to know. Uh, like it's the best insurance in the world I hate that I had to leave because I was like no no please let me stay but the one thing I would say was I was like she's like yo you just don't like people and that's okay like you don't have to like a whole bunch of people at one point in time and you'll like in your space but when I first moved to Montgomery like I didn't have nobody in my house but my roommate and then even when she was there like we would talk we sit at the dinner table and we converse about the work day, but I went back into my room and I just, I fell in like falling in love with myself again was one of the most beautiful things that I think I could have oh, Talk about it. Yes. Like being the art of being alone is hard. And I thought that I had mastered it when I was in Afghanistan, but I was depressed. Yeah. Like, and I didn't, I was in a space that I didn't need. I was in a country 10 and a half hours away ahead of time. You know, I was away from my family. I was away from my aunt. I was away from Patrick. I was away from my grandmother. My, I was blaming myself because my grandmother had started smoking again because she was so stressed about me being in a country during a wartime. I was, yeah. you know, blaming myself because I didn't, mend my relationship with my father before I left and I was like if I die the last thing I told to my father was fuck you you were never my father in the first place I kept I never had a chance to like really I developed monophobia and Mm. I've always I feel like I've always been monophobic um and then what's monophobia monophobia is the fear of being alone for listeners oh okay that makes sense that um and I had this and I used to think that I was just a serial monogamist Mm. and it was really just, I just wanted somebody to lay my body next to. Like I just wanted to feel the warmth of, of, of a human being next to me because I was so afraid to love myself and be by myself. And it was in these first six months of me living in this new city 
like after Shakisha, I quit my job. Like I was working at a call center, shout out to Alorca. <laughs> and I was like taking my lunch breaks to, you know, worry to organize and strategize nonviolent direct action protest trainings. And, you know, we're going to do this on this day and we're not going to put it on social media, tell anybody we're just going to do it. And we're going to, boy, we're going to stage a boycott protest at this specific Waffle House because it gets this much traffic at this time. And I'm like, focusing on this energy, my job. <laughs> and like, I was sleeping on my friend's couch, you know, for months and barely paying him rent with money that Patrick was giving me, you know, because he's always going to take care of his baby brother because that's all that he has. And yeah. like, and I wasn't, I just told Patrick that I was depressed at one point in time. And he was like, why didn't you say something? I was like, nigga, because why would I tell you that? <laughs> <laughs> why would I ever tell my big brother that I'm depressed? The person that I've always, you know, looked up to, I don't want you to know that something's wrong with me. You've poured so much into me for the 29 oh. years of my existence if I told you that I was depressed, I would feel like you, I would feel like you would feel like a failure. Like, where did I mess up? I exposed him to all of these different things. I gave him all of these opportunities. Why is he depressed? And it would be something else that I would have to blame for myself. But child, let me tell you, when I moved to Montgomery and I lived yeah. in that house by myself most of the time, and I was just like, you know, I wake up in the morning I would sit in my sunroom, I would read a book, and I would smoke the biggest blunt by myself, and I would be like, this is everything. Why mm. didn't I do this years ago? <laughs> <laughs> and it was even like, even if I was talking to myself, it was just like, I'm really cool with being by myself right now. I don't need a woman in, the, in here like to make me feel happy it was like I didn't need to date anybody I went on two Twitter dates when I first I mean not Twitter dates Tinder dates uh I mean Twitter dates are Tinder dates too but uh but um I went on like two Tinder dates and it didn't work out I was like oh, oh well <laughs> it's it's all right I'm busy and yeah I mean I re didn't really want to entertain nobody anyway but it was just like oh like I'm by myself feels great <laughs> but oh like oh my goodness I could go on and on but <laughs> I would rather talk about you well, no I, I I love this because I think it, I think one of the things that I've learned um during this whole book process is that and I, I'm not going to take credit for it in any way but so many people like I'll have an event a book event um that's an hour long but the signing line will be two hours long because people just want to talk about it. They just want to tell their story. They just want the opportunity finally to have someone to have that conversation with. So, and it's such a gratifying experience. I mean, I love talking about the book because I work really hard on it. Um, but hearing people respond the way they do and open up and want to tell what they've been through um, not to say that I'm taking responsibility for it, but it's something that I enjoy hearing because all I want is for the conversation to happen. All I want is for people to be able to talk about it and find the words to talk about it, point to a page and say, this is what it feels like on page 97 or whatever. Um, so this is great. I'm fine with it. <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> I mean, 
it is my show, but at the same time, you're the guest. Um, so I re- so I highlighted just a couple of points, and I just wanted to like go back to them. Um, if uh, let's see here, uh, depression is like a rumor that grows quietly and steadily, causing no problems or distractions until one day. I remember that time that I left the stove on and burnt the food and the smoke and the chaos of the alarm that blares in a broken jazz in my mind because it's because this shame is the only soundtrack I have. Girl, (laughs) 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 let me tell you something. Sis, I was like, why is she dragging me (laughs) so much? Um, like I was like where I was I was like I was in my office today listening to that and I just got up and walked out the room like (laughs) I left my I left my phone and my airpods disconnected and I was like fuck this I was like because this is it like this like feeling that like I want to say you describe depression as a fog because it never really feels like a weight uh it feels like a fault like it and it does feel hazy and it's like you're telling i'm i'm happy and it's like are you yeah (laughs) yeah are you sure about that because when people say darkness like it's a darkness i was like it doesn't feel dark it feels Mm -mm, it feels I, i can see but everything's distorted i can feel something on me but it's just like this weird like I think in the book I I said something like a like a like a damp towel where it's just like is this is this cold or is this wet you know what I mean? like you're not really sure how anything really feels but you're feeling it you're not sure what you can see but you're seeing it and it's just mm. this thing that that you and, and when you when you think about driving in fog when it starts to get lower and lower all of a sudden you're completely consumed by it but it's so right. slow and so subtle that you don't but when you're in it, you're like, how did I not notice that I drove straight into this? I cannot see. I can't see anything. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, you can't see your hands in front of you. Like, even if you put them in front of your face and it's like, everything is a haze. And it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or where I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do. And it was just, and even in the piece of finding peace by myself, I was still depressed, like up here, and it affected my work. Um, I remember telling my bosses we were getting closer to the job ending, and we talked about this offline, but it was just like, when I went into that juvenile facility, and, you know, I met this kid who was 14 years old. And I was supposed to be teaching a class and, you know, I was really excited because, you know, I found out, you know, hey, there's this loophole and we can, these kids can register to vote now instead Mm. of even having to worry about restoring their voter rights. So we don't have to do any type of voter restoration work. We just have to register these, these young men and these young women to vote. And he was like, Mr. Barnes, I need to speak with you you know, before you start your class in the classroom. And I was like, yeah, man, you can tell me anything. And I'm all upbeat. And then he says, I can't read. Um, mm. So it's going to be really hard for me to follow what you're saying. I can follow what you're saying. And, but I can't 
you know, read what's on the sheets of paper. So if you couldn't call, so if you don't call my name, I don't want to be embarrassed. And I stopped for a minute. And the first thing I said was, I don't even give a fuck about this class mm. anymore. Because we have a, we have a criminal justice system that is dehumanizing a child. And then on top of that, we have an education system that failed this kid in the first place yeah. Yeah. because he can't fucking read. And like, he was so shy and so innocent and he looked like he could have been my cousin or if I had a little brother, he could have been my little brother. And I remember I walked out after we were done with everything I taught the class, we registered kids to vote. And I stayed for a really long time afterwards because I was like, I don't know when's the next time they're gonna see somebody free. You know, and that and that, that word I conflate my like that word is confusing for me, the term free. But I was like, yeah. I don't know when they, when they're gonna see somebody that is not in bondage, you know, that is behind bars like they are, that's not like that is out in the world freely you couldn't take pictures with these children because they were still incarcerated like like the fact that i like the only memories that i have of them are that are in my brain and that's it like you know i had to leave my phone in my in my car you know and then when i got back i just cried i sat in the parking lot and i didn't move and i i couldn't you know, I couldn't crank the car and I just screamed as loud as possible. And I was just like, what is the point of even voting when children are in cages like yeah. animals? And yeah. what am I like, you know, what is by depression if, you know, this child is like literally being stripped of his humanity? Like, who gives a fuck about my depression? But as you said before, I can't conflate the two, I think. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, it, like, it's, it, it, it's, it's bad for you, you know? And, and I think that, that one of the things that I, I, I have a problem with when it comes to social media, as much as it, it, it unites us, what it does is creates this kind of hierarchy when it comes to mental health, where you can't feel upset about something happened to you because it's not as bad as something else and that's just not the way emotions work (laughs) like you feel the way you feel Mm. and it's not it's not oh i can't feel anything because somebody else has it much worse like you feel what you feel it's just a matter of what you do with that you know where you prioritize it um and how you speak about it i think Mm. like that's just mm. like and I think about him so often. I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm going back soon to go talk to them, um, and I want to like see him. I hope that he's, I hope that he's out of there. But I want to see his face again so I can yeah. hug him because I remember. I, 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 I hate how much. Were you allowed to touch them? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. That's one like. Um, shout out to. Uh, you know, Mr. Gavin, who is the principal of the school. He's a graduate of Alabama State. Um, He's a leader in the community. 
He's a former military serviceman, so we got along really well when we first met. And he was just really big on like mentorship and impactment. And the like the one thing like I just say shout out to black women just because because every single mm. teacher that they have is a black woman. And they were the ones that put on that symposium and that wanted these they brought all of these men um of different backgrounds and then for the for the for the uh, the women the young women who were at a rite of passage um they put on a similar thing um a similar event and it was just so refreshing because they were like these kids don't get nothing you know what i'm saying like how like how like how dare we forget about our most vulnerable like I was just in the DMV. I was in DC this weekend, uh, and we were. I was at a policy writing class, and when we started writing the policy and started learning about the purpose of writing the policy, the first thing that we said was, "We're writing policy that better that betters the lives of the most vulnerable." Because when we write policy that includes the most vulnerable, it helps everyone. Um, it includes everyone. When we are intentionally inclusive on helping everyone, then helping our most vulnerable, everyone benefits. There's no, oh, well, you're just helping this one subset of people, so it doesn't benefit me. No. When we are intentionally inclusive and intentionally deliberate in what we do and how we write it, we help everybody. There is no way that this doesn't help everybody. Um, And that was just really important to me. And like, I see those women all the time and I, I commend them for creating such an event to where we have, where they gave me access to now I can go there whenever I want to. And I don't have to be working in the job that I did, you know, to see them. Uh, But, and I thank you for that. But this book is something that I wanted to bring to some of those students there because I wanted them to like sit down and read this because I wanted them to understand. I'm like, for those that are dealing with this, like I've told students on my campus, like read a book. Cause I, this, you know, for college students as well. And I've told a lot of my, my young black women that are students at Alabama state. I was like, listen, if y'all like when you said you just wanted to exist, I can't remember what that guy's name was that you were dating in the book, but you were just like, I want to say you said, you know, well, he's happy to be around me. <laughs> I don't really want to be like, I don't really care that I'm here, but he's happy. So fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> and what did I call him? I changed the name. What did I call him? Oh, Jason. That's what his name was in the book. And it, it's funny because <laughs> my name is Jason. Uh, <laughs> People that are I'm, always this is why I don't J- write fiction. I'm so bad at coming up with fake names because it's so close to the actual name that I was like, my book is kept it. <laughs> people, people always, can you name the next fictional person, Kevin? Because people always, the shitty people in books always get named Jason. <laughs> okay, how about that's the how about that's the real name though? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> um, Not gonna to make it up names. <laughs> Shout out to Kevin. Uh, <laughs> but it was just for me, I was like, I've been there where you're where you're dating somebody or you're just sleeping with somebody. It was just like at the end of the book where you're like, yo, just fuck me. Like, I don't care yeah. about nothing else. Like, or, you know, hey, you're happy. Yeah. So that means I'm doing something right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, like, I. so it's, 
and it goes back to that, you know, you're fixing somebody, but while ignoring the own, by ignoring the fact that you're broken and not yeah. learning how to be by yourself. Um, but like I said, this is, we, I know we have to, we have to wrap up soon and I don't mm -hmm. feel like we have, we barely talked about the book. <laughs> Do you want to, uh, I mean, we can, I, I, I turned my evening over to you, so. Um, well, let's see, let's, let's go back um let's 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 actually dig in just a little bit um one of the the uh, I, I highlighted a lot of the last essay um and one of the things that stuck out is like uh when i was in my 20s and early 30s i accepted that this thing would return um and i treated it like a benign tumor that insisted that insisted on growing back and i still had my whole life ahead of me and I'm 40 now and I'm tired of fighting and this thing every single time it appears and it keeps appearing despite twice weekly appointments and twice daily rounds of medication, it keeps appearing. Um, not only is that brilliant, it's brilliantly dark, uh, <laughs> but it is a reality that so many of us face, especially, I mean, obviously yourself, but so many others, you know, cause this is not something that goes away I remember yeah. you coming to grips with this is something that you have for life. Um, yeah. And I remember you, like, it was going through the stages of, you know, denying, like, nah, I'm good. Like, yeah. this shit's going to go away, right? And, like, you kept wrestling with for the rest of your life. And seeing that, like, I'm 29 now, you know, mm -hmm. and I've wrestled with depression now for the last five, six, seven years. I don't know how long I've actually been depressed. But like I've been in, I'm in that stage now. We're like, oh, I'm in my twenties. This is gonna get better. Like, and you notice on Twitter, like, thirty plus Twitter makes it seem like everything's good. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be fine. Like, I'll find a wife, or if I really want to do that, or you know, whether I just want to co-parent with somebody and coexist. Um, my aunt doesn't want me to do that. Um, <laughs> she's very. You're gonna get married. I'm like, am I? <laughs> uh, maybe I just want to go bear it and, and fuck off. Like, I hope she doesn't listen to this, so I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like for me, it's like that. Like, how do you, how do you cope? You know, now where you are in your life with that, because you are in your 40s, you're a mother, and like for listeners that are like that are at that point or haven't got there like i know everybody's routine is different but just like how are you coping with that um i am the healthiest i've ever been in my entire life um and that's beautiful thank you uh and it and it's been such a journey to get here that nothing matters more to me than my mental wellness um, I had to learn to be very precise about what that meant. Um, I had to unlearn so much therapy. I could not emphasize how important therapy is as far as when you think about, if you think about your mental health as, as a house. So for me, medication taught me that I could move out of this house into a better house, into a better neighborhood. Mm. Therapy teaches me that instead of going right to go to the kitchen, I have to go left. 
instead of you know the 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 grocery store being right across the street i've got to like take a little journey to get there and instead of relying on relying on the instincts and relying on the way you the ways in which we've learned to uh make up for our deficiencies when we're depressed they're not healthy a lot of the coping mechanisms aren't healthy so having to unlearn those and those re- and then relearn better ways of coping has been completely it's been a game changer it's been a lifesaver for me um i work hard on it i i i i i i'm very clear about what my needs are um and i'm able to articulate articulate them i think so much of what i went through was me kind of just feeling blown around oh i'm supposed to go to college now i guess i'll go to college oh i live in new york now i guess i'll do this oh my god i'm on tv i guess i'm on tv now you know i wasn't making any choices i realized that all the relationships that i've got into all the situations that i got into i had never entered healthy i entered either hypomanic or depressed in a depressed state and they they proved themselves to be just that um dysfunctional because i wasn't entering them right um and now as I step back and I'm, like I said, I'm the healthiest I've ever been. I also know that my relationship to relationships needs to be dealt with. And I'm in a space now where I don't want to risk it. I'm not going to risk my mental health on a maybe. Um, I'm an emotional cutter. Uh, you know, I, 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 I use these things to feel something. And if that, then I'll fall into that head first. And, um, you know, uh, being able to be very clear about that and, and deciding and making a conscious choice to focus on other things and not that has been huge. Um, it's given me space to understand what it is I like, what it is I do, um, who I like, what kind of thing I like. Um, I'm not, I've, cre- I've crafted, I think one of the, the themes in the book has, was about normality and what normal means and and realizing for so long that my idea of normal was based on so much more than what it is for me. I've crafted my own normal. Everyone says it's, you know, we don't have a normal, there's no such thing as normal, but we have a baseline from which we operate. We have a place where this makes sense to me. This is my normal. So me creating mm-hmm. my own normal has been the thing that has saved me and has kept me afloat for the last couple of years. That is, first of all, that's brilliant, um, and that's beautiful. Uh, for one, I was just talking to one of my students about not compromising. Mm. Um, she actually stopped in my office today and told me a situation like, you know, why do I always, you know, do this, but, you know, these niggas do me like that. And I'm like, well, girl, stop compromising. I said, I don't compromise shit with nobody no more. <laughs> period like <laughs> like shout out to shout out to city girls um, yeah. <laughs> um but like the one thing that I tell like I remember saying to her like I was just in a situation where you know I went to go see this girl and I compromised a lot of my happiness um and a lot of my a lot of the things that I would not normally do because I've been doing very well with my mental health I hadn't you know, been making any like rash or stupid decisions, quote unquote, or like, yeah. you know, taking any steps back. But in this moment, I took a step back and I made a decision 
that I wasn't really too proud of and ended up compromising my happiness uh, to do it. And I was like, you know, after I did it, I thought about it and I was like, I don't like this. And so I blocked the girl um, oh. and um, didn't want to talk to her anymore. Her friend called me, I guess, to make sure she was blocked. And then um, I texted her, I said, why did you have your friend call me? And she was like, oh, I was just trying to see how I was, if I was blocked. And I was. And I said, yeah, I blocked you because of this. And, mm. instead, and it was in the first time. And I knew that I was, and I was like, I knew I was taking corrective action in the mistake that I made when I compromised myself. And I explained exactly why I did what I did. And I was like, mm. this is why I did this. And I said, it was because I'm not compromising my happiness just because I wanted to get my rocks off or, right. you know, like we're grown and I'm not going to allow anybody to gaslight me and I'm not going to allow anybody to lie to my face and I'm not going to mm. allow anybody to make me shrink myself so that they can feel better about themselves. I'm not going to do that anymore. Like I did that for, you know, 10 years of my life of adulthood I yeah. I kept shrinking myself to make everybody else feel good. I'm I'm yeah. tired of that. Um, and I was like, don't take it personal. You know, this is not a. It, it, and I didn't want to be like, you know, I I was like, it's fuck you, but it's not really fuck you. Um, if that makes sense, like, yeah, yeah, you know. But I'm not really dealing with that. Like, and I, I was telling my student, like, you don't have to deal with. I said, you don't owe none of these niggas shit. <laughs> so like at all <laughs> like and they don't owe you anything so stop treating them like they do but also remember that you can go about your business at any time that you want to yes like like and yeah. you can always mind your business and the and the business that and you know that keeps you and there's way more important things to focus on than dick um like fuck it like for real like but because yeah. you will lose your mind trying to focus trying to pour yourself into somebody who has not even thought about filling up a bucket to pour into you let alone actually yeah. make the act of pouring something into you um, yeah um a couple of weeks ago two weeks ago i was in the hospital um for a severe form of anemia and um, the doctor, the hematologist, came to speak to me once he figured out um, what was going on. Something called pancytopenia, something like that. But um, basically, my bone marrow doesn't create enough red, red blood cells and, mm -hmm. or white blood cells. So when he was describing it, he was like, you have a bucket and it has a hole in it. And so no matter how much blood or whatever we're filling this bucket with, no matter how fast we're doing it, it's still going to, it's still going to leak um, because there's something that's not, the, the container isn't solid. And I was thinking about that and then hearing you talk about it, it's like the same thing with our mental health when we were pouring ourselves into an empty bucket and people are pouring themselves into us and they're, they're doing the best that they can and that's how codependency gets um, created because they're doing the best that they can but there's nothing they can do to ever fill up that bucket ever and knowing that and having that visual in my head and, 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 and relating it to how it affects mental health it's made me want to concentrate on 
the bucket on fixing mm. the bucket, much on pouring things into it. Mm. And another thing that kind of really stuck out to me was just this part of this essay. And it was like, I've been hiding, uh, pretending this thing no longer exists, pretending I can carve a little bit of normal out of this, mm. shape it into something more palatable, more acceptable, more readily understood, replace one word for another and pray no one notices how purple or bruised my hands are from clenching my fists, how quickly the words tumble uncensored, how often the debit card is empty, child. <laughs> so, <laughs> how there is a new obsession every other day. This is a need to face uh, a blinking cursor and call it writing or a Facebook page and call it writing or Twitter and call it writing or a text thread and call it socializing. But it's really about this need to own something daily, to have a place. I need to be um, where I will be missed if a status remains the same for three hours. And child, I almost <laughs> wanted to like delete my Twitter account because <laughs> I was like, this is it. This is social media in a nutshell right here. It's like this, this addiction to existing. Yeah. And it's like to remind people that you're still there. And it was like, I was like, who was like, this is everything. Like, and thinking about that, and as a person who spends a lot of my time, like not just in a personal world in, in social media, but from a business standpoint, because I do a lot of social media strategy for businesses and we like, mm -hmm. in, you know, in my free time, when I have the time to like, you know, do a, do a strategy for somebody or consult for someone but it's something that consumes you. And like, when you're dealing with depression, it's such an easy out <laughs> um, to like get away and ignore what you're going through because you're so addicted to like, just letting people know that you exist, even though you yeah. kind of don't want to exist. Um, yeah. And I just wanted you to expound upon that. I know you talked a little, like a little bit about social media in the conversation um, I love your Twitter account because uh, it speaks to me. <laughs> um, you know, where I just say nigger dactyls and nigger potamuses like every three seconds <laughs> um, because those are great words and they should be in Webster's Dictionary. Um, the fact that niggersaurus is now a real word makes me feel like I haven't, I have made an impact on the world. <laughs> um, it's just me. But um, I just want you to expound upon that a little bit um because i think we all kind of struggle with that a little bit just yeah it's an addict like i don't think social i think social media can be addictive mm -hmm. um i think everything has an addiction like premise to it absolutely um, uh what i will like you can drink too much water and die yeah. So yeah, and and that's what I always kind of remind people. Like it's not, it's it's not Twitter's fault. Um, Twitter is a space where you can, you know, is a space where you can get your tweets off and and you know whatever that's going through. But be mindful of you know how much you get your shit off instead of not talking to a therapist about it. Um, yeah. But I just wanted you to expound on that if you could. Um, I, my my relationship to social media has changed. I've been on Twitter for 10 years as well um before that you know my space before that 
freaking friendster. Like every time social media has been has has popped up. No, before that, uh, what's it called? Stuff. Yeah, like BBM or I don't remember what they were all called. But like every time there was a thing that would allow me to showcase my personality in some way without actually putting a lot of effort into it, I was a Mm. part of that. And I've been, it's 25 years since I discovered email (laughs) in college. Um, So for me, it became this place where I hid, where I was, no matter how lonely I felt, I had cultivated this community that got used to it. I almost trained them. I trained them um, to, to, um, to expect certain things. Like if I went all day without posting, somebody's going to message me. Someone's going to, if they have my phone number, text me. Um, not call, just still keeping it thing. Um, and that made me feel wanted. It made me create this virtual codependency because people like, oh, I, I really, you know, I love waking up and seeing your tweets because I'd be tweeting all night because I couldn't right. sleep. You know what I mean? Because I was manic. And there's always somebody awake somewhere. I said, I think I said that in the book. There's always somebody awake somewhere. And I got, and I got addicted to that. I got addicted to, 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 to having said something that made someone halfway across the world laugh or respond. And that person, if they didn't see me at the same time, would look for me. Because I was in a space where who would look for me? And I don't mean like family members who are trained to look for you, who, you know, you live in the house with them or, or whatever, but like, feeling like there was a place for me somewhere that I was more than whatever was going on in my head. Um, That's what social media did for me. It gave me a space where when I couldn't contain it anymore, I felt like I could be honest about where I was emotionally. Because when I started talking, this is going to sound like I'm taking credit for it, but I I can't, I can't. When I started talking about my mental health stuff and, 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 and showing the spiral um, via tweets and you could tell like where I was emotionally by how rapid the tweets were I used to get blocked out of Twitter all the time remember back when you couldn't tweet too much or mm. you get the you couldn't sign in anymore I would get that all the time all the time and be locked out for I don't know how long um, but I got used to wanting those things for me and I was able to perform for them and that performance is something that I've carried my entire life I've always known how to perform for people. And now I was performing, but I was also being a little bit honest too. And as much as that helped me, and and, and people have told me that it's helped them, but as much as it helped me, it also hurt because I got my, how I felt was dependent on how other people reacted to the things that I posted. Um, I became reckless because I wasn't thinking, I wasn't using it in a responsible way. I got what I needed to. I've, I've, I, I learned to step back from it. I took a 10-month break last year when I was writing the book. And what I realized, it was the first time that I'd been away from Twitter for that long or social media for that long. And I realized that I had learned to think in these short bursts. And I'd learned to think and respond before thinking because people wanted to know what you think, right? Something happened 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, Two seconds ago, people want to know your thoughts already. What do you think about this? And so I'm talking and like talking out my ass and, and, and thinking and talking at the same time. And when I took that away, when I realized that my opinions about things were much different than, the, than, than, than I thought, um, the way that I process information 
was a lot different than, than it had been for a really long time because I had given myself a chance to step back, take a breath, process, and then react. And as someone who has these, you know, hypomanic episodes or had in the past where it was always do first, think about it later, I realized that it was Twitter especially was creating this like um, synthetic hypomania um, that was acceptable. And that's not something that I was interested in. So when I took that time off and I only came back because I needed to promote the book and I needed to, you know, start doing that. Um, when I came back, my relationship with it changed. The way that I saw myself as a full person, it was no longer, um, it wasn't contingent on what other people thought or how much they responded to me. And then when it does get like that, I do know enough to like, to step back and, 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 and be very careful about what it is that I share. And, and you should know too, as you have like, the higher your profile gets, um, the more followers you get, the more people are, 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 are kind of invested in you tripping up a little bit. Um, just to be like, ah, you know, you said this thing and, and, and that's not what we're saying these days. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I just got here. What are we not saying anymore? And there's no grace. There's no space to, 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 um, to correct yourself. People kind of, and I noticed this again when I came back, cause I was away from it for so long, but like people be loud and wrong and they have these like 50 tweet thread long and they're wrong. And somebody will say, Hey, you got your fact wrong here. I'm correcting you. And either they'll attack that person or they'll just abandon it. There'll be no apology. There'll be no deleting of the, of the mistake. Um, and I saw that and I was like, this is so damaging because not only are we creating these, these gods in these spaces, people who aren't, who feel like they can't be corrected. We're also creating this culture where we're not allowed to make a mistake, apologize for it, correct our behavior and keep going. You know, um, and this is just for Twitter. This is not like a larger cancel culture. I don't think cancel culture exists in like the zeitgeist of the world. I don't think it exists there. But I do think there's a, there's a place on Twitter specifically where people are invested in always being right and always catching somebody being wrong. And I don't mm. think that's healthy. It's definitely not healthy for me. I get it, 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 it causes anxiety when I see people like piling on somebody when when they're just retweeting, retweeting, retweeting. And I catch myself doing that. And I always, if you'll notice, I always go back and delete it. Like, oh, I should not have put that person out there like that. Yeah, um, like, I, for me, cancel culture has been so weird for me. Like, I like we've been on Twitter now the same amount of time. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I came in on, I, I tell people the cycle of Twitter is you join Twitter, you don't really get it, so you leave, and then you come <laughs> yes. back. And you're like, this is the greatest shit ever. And yes, so, yes. <laughs> Um, but the one thing I've I've struggled with with cancel culture is I told people I'm like, look, man, 2009, I was in the military and I didn't know shit. I was a very toxic person. Mm -hmm. I said I didn't come in here being a person who supported feminism. I didn't understand misogyny. I struggled with calling women females, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and my best friend had to cuss me out to make me get it, like that I was limiting women just by their genitalia. Like I had to, and it's a shame that I wasn't adult enough to understand that, but she gave me enough grace for me to get it. Yeah. Like, and she didn't have to do that. And the yeah. one thing that I've kind of like come to grips was is like with Kanye, like I tell yeah. people all the time, I'm like, consume, like 
we are I say guy I, I had a student who's a big Kanye fan he's 19 years old and so the only the greatest artist that she's ever seen in her life in rap music has been Kanye West mm-hmm. and I had to come to grips with that because I had to think about it. I said wait a minute I was 14 when Kanye came out maybe 14 15 when through the wire came out she was like five years old <laughs> you know what I'm saying and so like even when I'm like, I have to remember that I have to stop being the grandpa that yells from the porch that says, get off my lawn, <laughs> yeah. you know, and remember that I'm, I'm, condi- I'm doing the same thing that, you know, baby boomers do to millennials when they think that we're all teenagers when we're really like in our thirties. And I'm like, you're, you're talking about teenagers. You're talking about 17 year olds. You're not talking about us, but what I realized was what I was telling her was I'm like, we are a consumer based society. And I said, cancel culture works like this. If I don't like, if you like 2% milk and I like whole milk, but you don't like 2% milk for whatever, you don't like whole milk for whatever reason. And you say, I'm going to buy 2% milk and you're going to buy whole milk. You can look at me sideways for buying whole milk and you can have an issue with it, but I'm still going to buy the motherfucker. because it's because it's it's my money like and it's how i want to spend my money and if if i want to spend my money on bullshit you can side eye me but i'm still gonna keep buying it right like i didn't listen to the new kanye i didn't care because at that point i was like look this dude is clearly suffering from mental issues like, and he's using religion as a coping me- mechanism instead of probably taking medication and probably going to see his therapist instead. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be the person to really judge him. But what I will say is, and I said this the other day, I said, Kanye is not a Christian, or maybe he is. I don't really want to be the person to judge that because I don't have holes in my hands and feet and I never wore a crown of thorns. So I don't <laughs> have a heaven or a hell to ever put you in. I don't even want to be the person to have a heaven or a hell to put you in. But what Mm. I do know is that he is a opportunistic capitalist that understands that he has weakened his support group and his, where his, where people spend money. So the only place that he has left to go to is bigots. And the one thing I know about white evangelical bigots is that they love Jesus. So if Mm. you can put out there some, if you could slap together some makeshift Christian music, and, the, and you get white folks bopping and a couple of these, you know, televangelists to say, oh, I had Kanye come in my church and it was cool. Did that be your business? But as for me and my house, I'm not mm-hmm. going to listen to it. It doesn't, I don't care that these people listen to him. I just want people to understand that the stuff that he spews on stage is ahistorical and it is mm-hmm. nowhere near correct. And if you use Google, because Google is too free for anybody to be stupid, <laughs> and it's on your phone, you know what he's saying is bullshit. But if you know, and if the music sounds good to you, then so be it. The music sounds good to you. I don't care. <laughs> but and yeah. I and I've told people like that is cancel culture. Like you, I think the problem becomes is everybody thinks, well, I like I only drink drink 2% milk so all of you should drink 2% milk and if no, you bitch. drink whole milk if you drink whole milk then there's then you 
you kill babies and you eat them and you're also capable of doing all these other like it's no it's not that horrible things and it's like it's, yeah it's not that's that's not it that's 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 never been it like it's it's just not the same thing and like yeah. and it's not horrible like are there some things that yeah are there some things that cross the line obviously but yeah like, but we can't my thing is you can't use the same brush or you can't put everybody in the same container, especially because there are, there are so many things. That, and I've, again, you and I have been on Twitter for a long time. I've been on Twitter long enough to see the people who are doing the quote unquote canceling now. And I've seen the stages of evolution and the steps that they went through, the, the shit they used to say, and then they deleted their old accounts. And now they're on a whole different way, which is fantastic. We evolve, we grow, we learn, we do better. That's what life is. But those same people are not allowing other people to grow, to evolve, to learn, to do better. And that's my issue with it. Yeah. I don't believe that once anything is, is, is always anything. That's just not my ministry. But going back to Kanye, I know mental health. I know bipolar disorder. I know bipolar 2 disorder. I know what hypomania looks like. I know how it, 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 it takes who you already are and then magnifies it by almost a hundred. So the Kanye that we love, the Kanye who was this braggadocious kind of like, you know, I'm, all his lyrics are like floating in my head right now where he just like the best, like he showed up talking about how he was the best. He showed up talking about how he's the best. That ego, you put that ego and you slap hypomania on top of it, it grows exponentially. At this point now, what he has is an audience. What he has now are people who are listening to him who are listening to his every word my fear is that he's internalizing that and what goes up always comes down he's been on this manic place for like a couple of years now I used to be when he was on Twitter I could like kind of track his moods um when he comes crashing down the height that he's placed himself especially when it comes to religiousness and religiosity or whatever I'm afraid of what's going to happen when it crashes because when it crashes it's going to be devastating to him. It's going to be devastating to the people around him. So I can't sit here and I haven't listened. I don't listen to his music anymore because I can't put any money or streams towards somebody's destruction. Because when I see what That's I exactly see it. is a destruction, I see him just being destroyed and, and people go off all day on Twitter. I was like, number one, he's not on Twitter. Number two, he's not reading this. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? Because I understand the, the, the fact that you're, you're saying that what he's saying is ahistorical, but the people who would believe what he's saying without researching it are not the people you're going to reach by tweeting at him. And I had to check myself about that. And I think that's something I'm like, why am I giving so much energy? And it's what you, I find myself having to remember things that I've told other people. Why are you giving so much energy to a person that doesn't even know you exist? Yes. Like, this person is never going to read. Like Kanye has said before, I don't give a fuck about Black Twitter. I give a fuck about Jack Dorsey. Yeah. Because he comes to my house. Like, and if you know that's the type of person that he is, then you automatically know you don't have to give this person any of your energy. And yeah. like, I've, I've had to come to grips with that. Um, I realized the same thing about a lot of these you know, athletes, like they make a lot of boneheaded decisions, but I'm like, yo, these football players are getting hit in the head running like a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> yes. Like, like That's I what... remember 
I remember your conversation with Bomani and y'all kind of hinted at this and y'all talked yeah. about this. Like, and what I've loved is like, if you haven't seen on Bleacher Report, they've done like a really, really good job and I love it. They sit down with former players um, and they sat down and talked to Percy Harvin, um, you know, former wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks and played for the Minnesota Vikings. He's played at the University of Florida. And I didn't know he had anxiety issues, like yeah. where he would sweat like out his clothes. Like we, I never knew it was that bad, but just the fact that he was having these type, like he was being this open, like was so pure and so beautiful, but it was also so frightening. Cause I was like, what other guys are going through this shit just for a fucking check? Like, the the lifespan of an NFL player, the career span is five years. So you're like really risking not only your men, your physical health, but your mental health for a check when you're you're not even getting the proper sliver of a pie. It all that's that's why yeah. I tell people I'm like it take what Kaepernick did out of it. These guys are literally like crashing into each other, like speeding cars, and yeah. they're killing themselves. And then yeah. when they get out of this game, they're depressed, they're angry, they're suicidal, they're yeah. violent against women. They don't know who to talk to, what to do. The yeah. only thing that they've known how to do is play football. It sounds very similar to being in the military. Like a lot of guys that get out, and I tell people, like people ask me why I got out. I said, I got out one because... Trayvon Martin was killed when I was in Afghanistan and I saw white people act a fucking nut. Wow. <laughs> um, but on top of that, not, not only did I see that, I saw guys that came back and all they were were mechanics or they were uh, all they do was kick down doors and shoot guns and they were all on adrenaline and yeah. PTSD and what did they go do? They go be police officers and now oh. they're trigger happy cops and they're killing yeah. people of color because they treat people they treat black and brown bodies just like they treated the black and brown bodies that were overseas and they yeah. see everything as a threat and there's no type of protocol to check their mental health when they're going through these tests to become police officers police precincts are just excited that somebody wants to be a police officer because police officers are so underpaid and we need all of these guys on the street to over police these people and not actually help anybody but actually kill them so like it's this vicious cycle and it's the same thing for football players like they're putting their lives on the line like i don't know if i if i do have children i don't know if i could ever let them play such a sport that oh subjugates them to something like that like it's insane oh absolutely not absolutely my 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 son is is one of the most athletic humans you will ever meet like since he was four years old he could you give him a ball and he's he knows what to do with it he's got an arm on him that's ridiculous he knows how to like you know, I, I don't know sports, but like you know, juke people. He's always talking about that on the on the on the foot on the playground, and and I've watched him play with his friends. I was like, this kid is talented. He plays soccer because my sister works for the NFL, and she said, hell no, 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 he's not playing. He can use all those same skills for other sports because there's no way in hell this kid is playing football on any kind of level because it is dangerous. 
and unless it's addressed and unless it's addressed as it's happening and not afterwards, then it's going to be a problem because these men are leaving. And this is the same for, for, for when you think about it, it's all the same kind of trauma, right? It's, it's, it's the way that your brain processes this, processes trauma. And what is more traumatic than having a bunch of huge people run into you and fall on you? Right. Like that's not natural. That's not normal. So your brain is is trying to find a way to process something that's that traumatic, but it's also your job. And that's where it's the same thing as the military. Yeah, like I found I found so much respect in Andrew Luck that was just saying like, I don't want to do this no more. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. yeah, like he would like I feel like Andrew Luck is a real is a real life SpongeBob meme. He was like, all right, I'm gonna hit out. like like i'm straight like y'all got it like yeah i i've made my money like and i don't want to like have to go through therapy again and have to subject myself to rehab and you know having to come back and all of this other stuff just for the love of the game because i don't love the game anymore because I'm more focused on trying to get healthy to play the game that I love than actually play the game that I love. And it's, that is undeniably frustrating. Like I'm a podcaster. I couldn't, if I had to work to get back, to get my voice right to podcast instead of podcasting, I wouldn't podcast anymore. I'm constantly having to do that over and over and over again. Like, you know, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, but just just on that note, the reason why I stopped performing poetry is because of the anxiety. And I used Mm. to be able to barrel through the anxiety and figure it out later. Like I would be, as soon as I stepped on the stage, I would be okay for a little bit, but I started being, not being okay. I started having severe panic attacks, severe anxiety. I passed that on stage once, which is the greatest fear in the world. This is about five, six years ago. in Nigeria. And um, I realized that I didn't love it enough to keep putting myself through that. And then on top of that, <clears throat> the work I would need to do to, to, to continue wasn't worth what I was doing. I hadn't loved that in a long time. It just became my job. So I quit doing it. And people you know, laugh and joke about, oh, you, once a poet, always a poet. Yeah, of course, whatever. But nah, never will I'm... I. This is not what I'm going to do because it's not worth what I have to put myself through to get to where it is, where it's entertaining for you. Yeah. Like I actually, I, I used to be a poet uh, in my church. Uh, I don't talk about it. I mean, like if you went to church with me, like I went to a really, really big church, um, like 5,000 members almost. And I used to do poetry. um, And I used to, I stopped doing it because the poetry that I began to write was a little bit darker than what the church liked. And they were like, can you not Mm. talk about this and like maybe change this? And I'm like, so first of all, I'm not going to change my art because I'm sensitive about my shit. Um, (laughs) Shout out to Erica. But um, as I like, I was like, I find myself having to conform and having to like, I already have my gripes with the church because I don't find it because it's not therapy. <laughs> so like, um, 
and their answer to depression is, oh, you just need to read your Bible. Like, no, yeah. I don't. That shit's trash. Not the Bible, but like that coping mechanism is trash. Like, that's not going to help me right now. Um, and I found that to be so frustrating on top of a whole bunch of other things that are like misogynistic, homophobic, and I'm not going to get into it. But yeah. um, I stopped writing a long time ago and I was just like, I don't want to do this shit no more. Like, yeah. like I'm, and, I'm, and I was okay with, with stopping. And I had some friends like hit me up like, yo, Jason, like I remember all your poetry on, you know, MySpace back in the day. It used to be really dope. And I was like, yeah, but it's not me. Like, I just don't, like, I don't find a reason as who I was. Like, like it, it was a chapter in my life where I wrote a lot and like I was really, you know, excited about it. But like, I didn't like performing it like because I was only performing it in one type of space and it was a very, you know, conservative lens. So I'd only be able to, you know, operate in that lens and in that space. Yeah. And that's not what I wanted to do. Like if I wanted to write this shit, I wanted to be as honest as I wanted to be like, and, and I just fell out of love with it. Like, yeah, it, it was the same thing with singing. Like, I sang, I know, you know, Patrick sings, you yeah. know, we both are musical people, you know, I still sing from time to time, but I sang to keep myself alive in Afghanistan. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel the need to sing anymore because I wasn't in that war zone anymore. So I was like, I tell people, I always make a joke that I don't sing for free anymore unless mm -hmm. I'm drunk. But it's really because like, singing takes me back to that space of where I was yeah. like of where I would only look forward to Sundays in Afghanistan because that was when I was at my happiest. It wasn't church that made me happy. It was singing that made me feel free from the yeah. space of where I was. It made yeah. me feel like I'm not, I'm back in show choir in college. You know, I'm back in show choir in high school it didn't make me feel like, oh, I'm singing these, you know, I'm singing melodies from heaven and, you know, Kurt Franklin is in the room with me. It was like, no, fuck that. I'm, I'm singing because this shit makes me feel free. It's like, yeah. it reminds me that I'm not here. Like, I would sing karaoke on Saturday because of that. It's like, I would just sing because that's all I knew I could do because I didn't want to write poetry anymore. Like, um. I know we got to wrap up soon, but the last thing I wanted you to talk about was, and you kind of talked about your son a little bit, but yeah. um, there was one really important uh, like excerpt and you talked a little bit about motherhood in this and you didn't have to say it, but it made just so much sense. And it was like, this thing ain't easy. And I don't mean to complain because life is beautiful and it's magic and I'm blessed and I'm grateful, but this, brain feels broken sometimes this brain does this thing and takes little soap bubbles and everyone feels this sometimes and morphs them into latex balloons and uh you're the only one in this world who can't seem to lift herself out of bed in the morning and then the balloon feels like a brick and the brick becomes wall and the wall is a mountain and then you're stuck so i'm grateful 
to only be a latex balloon right now, but this thing ain't easy. And before that, you talk a little bit about your son and like how you're trying to balance your mental health while being a mother. And as like, I am not a black woman. I am a black man. So I only know the black cis hetero (laughs) experience. (laughs) Um, But as a black woman, black women make so many sacrifices. And when I read that, the first thing I thought about, like I, and, and before you even, before that excerpt, you talked about, you know, your cheeks being in your knees in the hallway. And the one thing I thought about was my aunt, you know, my my mother passed, you know, me and Patrick's mother passed when I was nine months old. Um, so I do not have the luxury of remembering her um, yeah. like he does. You know, he had a very much shared experience with her that I never got. Um, but I was thankful enough to have three aunts that were her sisters and they poured so much love into me. I tell people all the time, you know, Glenn taught me how to not give a fuck. Um, Claudia taught me how to read a room. Um, <laughs> Johnny taught me what tough love was. Um, and Johnny was one particular person that loved on me, especially different because her and Lucille were so close. Um, yeah. And But one thing I never realized, I never asked myself, what does she sacrifice being a single parent? Like what, what mental health did she sacrifice to put me and her son before her own troubles, you know, and the things And I just wanted you to just expound on that because I think as I think for women, when they, when they are mothers, everything becomes secondary (laughs) except the the child that you're raising. But when you're dealing with mental health, you have to, how do you balance that? I have to worry about myself and worry about raising this beautiful human being that I, I know that your son has to be this beautiful human yeah. being because the way that he's you pretty cool about him. <laughs> I mean, he's got to be pretty fucking dope. Um, but I just wanted you to talk about that for a few minutes because I feel like that's necessary for any of the mothers that are listening. Um, well, it's 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 tough because um, I have a very a difficult relationship with motherhood and parenting. Um, I didn't want kids. I was mm. very certain about that. Um, I, my son and I, and I actually ended the book exactly where I did because I didn't want to go into it um, just because I'm very protective of him and very protective of his story and very protective of the fact that this is a person. He's his own person. Um, Mm. he's my son in that, you know, I'm the reason he's here, but he is his own person. And, and I don't talk about him online much. Um, I used to like, he's a funny kid and very smart. And I used to like talk about it. And then when he got old enough, he was like, I don't like that people know I said something and I don't know who those people are. And I was like, Mm. word. Okay. And now I ask him, I ask him, can I post this picture? Can I talk about your soccer? And he's like, yes, or no, or, you know, what have you. And, um, I think that because of the way that he came into this world, um, our relationship is one of mutual respect in that I didn't ask to be here, but I'm here. And I'm like, I wasn't really expecting you, but you're here. How are we going to make this work? What kind, of a, what kind of a parent can I be to a child that I don't really know, um, that I don't really understand? 
Um, there's a longer story to, to everything, but one of the decisions I made was to come home. Um, I was in mm-hmm. Brooklyn. We were in Brooklyn. I realized that I could not do this. Um, there was no way. And, 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 and my pride at, at, at being this person who left school and I went to New York and I made this life for myself and all these different things, um, um, that had to go out the window because there was this other person that I knew that I was not capable of taking care of on my own. And that's what saved us. And that's what allowed him to become the person that he is because I made sure, like I'm alive, but I made sure that he has my sister who he talks to regularly, who is the, the, the parent, quote unquote, who, 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 who bakes the cookies and sends the treats and, and buys the, the fancy um, uh, soccer cleats. And I have my two brothers who live literally 10 minutes away who will hop on, hop in the car and drive over here at a moment's notice, who make sure that they're at every single soccer game and every single, you know, uh, practice and all these things and are able to talk to him. He has my father, who is one of the kindest human beings you've ever met in your, in your life. And when I see my son, when I see him, I see all the things and all the elements that made him. And I know that if it was just me and him, I would see all the ways that I failed him as opposed to who he is as a person. So it's very important for me, like even now, like I'm in a position now much better, you know, in a, in a year, I'll be in a position where we can move. And he's like, I need to, we need to live where grandpa can walk to us. And I'm like, oh, word, I got to find a place in this neighborhood. I can't move to Chicago like I want. I can't move back to Brooklyn. I got to be here. But like, that's, the, that's the compromise. That's, that's the person that he is. I also, um, 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 I think you get the child that you need in, in certain ways because this is also someone who, when he was five years old, he was five years old when Trayvon Martin was killed. And I remember him being in the kitchen um, in the, like, the, the, the little breakfast area and the television room is like right there and he's watching it. And I saw him like tense up and then I saw him start to shake just a little bit. And I'm looking at him and I'm looking what he's watching and I carried him out of the room and he's asking me, he was like, what about my jacket? Can I not wear my jacket anymore? He's five. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, it has a hood. I can't wear my hood anymore. And I was like, okay. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing where this is going because what happened is that I started to see who I was when I was a kid and the ways in which people should have pulled me out of certain rooms and asked me what was going on, put me in therapy if I needed it, asked certain questions. And I know enough about myself and my experience to ask him those questions. So we have a much different relationship than I did with my parents. And he has a much different relationship with my parents than, than, than we did because he is able to articulate the things that he needs. And when he needs something and he can't articulate it, he knows enough to ask for the help that he needs. So it's all about, for me, once I realized that he was not a symbol of my failure, he wasn't a symbol of anything other than the fact that he was an, a, an alive human being who was not an appendage. He wasn't my arm. I know people have this thing with like, my child is my heart outside my body. My child is a, is a person <laughs> who exists. Ooh, you know what I mean? Like, can you can you say that one more time? Because I, I don't know what I said. <laughs> like, your child is a person. Like, is a human. I think as black folk, and I think maybe all parents do this, but I think as black folk, we tend to forget that 
these children are human beings. Yes. Like, and I'm a person who wants kids. Like, I'm still a person whose team fuck them kids till I want them <laughs> kids. Yeah. <laughs> but the one, the one thing that I don't understand is like, because like when we start talking like and dealing in like gender, like identity and sexuality, like I hear so many people that are my age, like that are 29, like, I don't want my kid ex- exposed to this or watching this on television because they're or they're gonna be trans or yeah. all these others. I'm like, I'm like, bro. First of all, this person is, is a human being. Whatever yeah. that they want to be, they're going to be, and there's nothing that you can do to stop yeah. it. No matter what you do, you can pray as much as you want to. You can put them in any school that you want. I remember one of my closest friends in high school was gay and he ran track with us and all of the guys that he hung out on the track team were gay and so his dad thought that oh if I take him out of this school and I put him in a Christian school he'll be Mm. straight and guess what didn't happen (laughs) yeah you can take a wild guess and what he ended up finding was that there were a whole bunch of boys who were in the closet that were sent to that school Mm. to because they were exhibiting forms of homosexuality and so they suppressed that and then he was even in a much more dangerous environment because they saw him as this other because he had the audacity to be free yeah um and be himself so he put himself in an even more he put his son in an even more compromised position than where he was already yet in a public setting in a public school and it's like y'all don't have control over these kids like I appreciate you saying like y'all don't like yes you parent them like I remember everybody used to say Will Smith and Jada were crazy because they let let them do whatever the fuck that they wanted to do and now now Jaden is like feeding the homeless in California and like like saving the Flint water crisis by himself because by himself and, and you I'm know like, what that is? And I'm like, y'all said they was y'all said they was crazy because he wanted to wear a fucking skirt and he's a yeah. fucking real life superhero. <laughs> or they spoke about their kids like they were people from the very beginning. And like for me, I, I have friends who have kids around, you know, uh, a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger. Um, and they're all about about telling the kids, like, you do this, you can't do that. And I find with my son, like when I saw how he mirrored me, as opposed to there was the first time, I think he was like maybe two or three years old, we were at Target and we go to, we went to Target a lot. I was depressed. I had nowhere else to go. We just go to Target. And, and I would, you know, pay the person. I'd say something, please. Thank you. You have a good evening, blah, blah, blah. And there was one day just randomly, he said, please, thank you. And have a good day before I did. And that became his thing. He started to mirror the things rather than me saying say thank you say please say whatever he would on his own picked up that I was saying please and thank you and you know and being kind and polite to people he had this thing that he used to do when he was little and this is where my I, I get conflicted about him seeing certain things especially in that last essay him seeing you know the depressive episodes because I didn't want him to feel responsible for my moods I didn't want to lash out at him because I was hurting and him be confused about whether or not it was him that was doing it or there was something else. And I was clear that it was something else. And so I found myself apologizing to him a lot. 
I didn't mean to snap at you. I don't know if my voice was too sharp, but I didn't mean for that. I was nervous over here. I was like just talking to him in that way um, and, and being very mindful of his emotions and his moods. And um, when he was little, we used to be like just in the grocery store or whatever. And if he sees somebody that looks upset, he would walk up to them, put his hand on them and say, who do it? Who broke it? And like that level of empathy at a ch- as a child that young and seeing how he's able to see when people are in crisis and not feel responsible, but feel like I need to know what's happening. Are you okay? And even now he's, he'll be 13 in a couple of shit in a couple of weeks. Good God. And he, he's so very, my, my, my dad forgets my birthday. Don't feel bad. It's, <laughs> no, but it's just, I can't believe he's about to be 13. That's, that's wild to me. He's, he's three. Um, you made a like, human being, bro. Like, and, and I don't think people get that. Like, I don't. That's why I, and in the, a, <laughs> a, a, a human being who was out here doing shit on his own. Like, that's the thing. Like, I was, I always felt like I was this huge representation of my parents. And I remember not wanting to be a single parent ever because that's just not part of our conversation in this house. The same way dropping out of college isn't part of the conversation, but I did that too. Um, but Jeez. I felt this like shame <laughs> that I was putting on him, like putting all this shame on him about choices that I made. I'm like, this is not this kid's problem. He's not going to walk around here thinking he's missing out on something because I made a decision. And too many people, and I hate it when, like, when, when especially single mothers say, oh, that's my little man, or oh, that he's the head of the household. He's three. Yeah, he's not like, the head of anything. He's not your little man. I was so resistant. I would not put things, I wouldn't put clothes on him that said, you know, tough guy or whatever. None of that. Like, we're not putting that narrative into this child because that is not necessary. That's how problems get started. And I don't think that, I don't, like, I know, like, Black people often talk about, like, you know, I hate having to have the talk with my with my son or daughter because it strips them of their innocence. But we, but we unknowingly strip them of their innocence when we place them um, into these positions of making them men of the house when they haven't even been given the chances to be children. Um, like I used to hate when I was raised by by my grandparents, and they used to tell me, "You can't do what white folks do," mm-hmm. and I never understood what the fuck that meant. <laughs> so I was like, "What does that mean?" Like, or like. Or because I said so, or because I'm grown, and I'm like, I used to hate that because <laughs> I'm like, can you give like, I tell people often that have kids, and I tell my friends that have kids, um, you know, hey, make sure that you talk to your kids like human beings. Stop assuming that they're stupid and they don't understand what the fuck is going on. Like they know, they get it. Like they're not idiots. And like the moment that you get that, the better off that you will be. Yeah. And I and I, and I just heard your alarm saying it's time to go to fucking. Sleep. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I put so, it on um on do not disturb, but it's watch okay. you telling on me. <laughs> but I mean, no, no, we're good. I mean, no, because it, it's 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 our time. You know, mm-hmm. we're almost at we're almost at two hours, and I have enjoyed this so much. I see why you are good friends with Patrick. Um, because I could do this all day, and I do this all day anyway. Um, Bossy, I love you so much. Oh, I love Uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really grateful for you for for for, for doing this. But sorry, go ahead. Your book has done so much for my life. I'm going to read this probably again, probably when I'm like 
have nothing to do in December. Um, <laughs> and when I'm done reading the next book. So now it comes time for shameless plugs. Woo! <laughs> um, so guys, I'm gonna let you guys know real quick. Um, as you know, uh, this, you know, we're coming to a close on this book. Um, if you didn't, if you missed your chance to submit any questions uh, to Bossy um, for the podcast, I know we didn't get a chance to ask any questions. Um, you can, of course, you can always tweet her um, at Bossy World. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure she would be glad to answer them, you know, when she can be patient with her. Um, <laughs> she does have a New York Times bestseller and she's traveling <laughs> the world. Um, you know, telling her story and listening to others tell their stories. Um, the next book was going to be The Quiet Revolutionary, which uh, focuses on Roy Wilkins, one of the presidents, well, one of the um, directors, because that originally they were not called presidents and CEOs, which I learned this weekend uh, in my history lesson at the Washington Bureau of the NAACP in D.C., uh, was going to follow Roy Wilkins. We will not be reading that book because it is November. It is Thanksgiving, and I want y'all to take a breather. But in December, we will be picking up, and we will be reading Casey Gerald's There Will Be No Miracles. Um, mm -hmm. Casey is really, really excited. Uh, He's I've amazing. Never... He is, and that book is everything. <laughs> yeah. Um such an, a phenomenal writer. And I'm telling you guys to pick up the book now. Um, the moment that I tweeted him was the same week that I tweeted you when I posted mm -hmm. the thread about the books that we selected. And he was so excited. Like, yeah. I've never seen an author that was so excited. He was like, I didn't even know that Twitter had a book club. Like, <laughs> when was this? Why was I not told? Like, he was super, super excited. And I love when authors are super, super excited to show their literary, their literary work with us. Yeah. Um, this is Reading While Black. So we love uh, celebrating books that are by us, with us in mind, uh, most importantly, especially when they are uh, Black authors. And so um, Bossy, as you know, as our as an appreciation gift to you, we got you some shirts. Yeah, <laughs> um, They're on the way. They should be there in November at some time. Um, Thank you. Um, when you get them, please post them. Let us know you got them. Um, if they don't fit, let me know. Um, so I can cuss out a teespring. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, y'all not getting my shit right. Um, also, we're coming up on our three year anniversary, guys. And in our three year anniversary starting next year, we're going to be cranking out a lot more books. As you guys know, with me now working at Alabama State, we can now do college while black permanently. I have been talking to the basketball team as well as the football team about reading books. We may be reading $40 million Slave, um, we may be reading uh, some Jason Reynolds as well. Um, there's a couple oh, of different I love things. Jason. Um, I've been trying to get in touch with him. If you can, t if you can text him, just be like, "Look, there's this guy with this book club." I'll, I'll off when we get off. I'll, 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 I'll send you his assistant's email. Thank you, because we read one of his books actually last, like two years ago. Yeah, and we tried to get in touch with him, but we just were unable to connect with him. We tweeted him like crazy. Um, guys, like I said, we want this. 
my dream is for all six six thousand of you, six thousand plus of you to read with us. I know that that is impossible. Um, remember to buy the merch. You know, every shirt that you buy, we pour that right back into the book club. We buy books for people who cannot buy, who cannot afford to buy them. Remember to buy your books at a local bookstore. Do not buy your books at Amazon um, because it is a billion dollar conglomerate. Um, <laughs> I mean, but still support these black artists where you, these, these black authors where you can. So if you got to buy from there, I get it. But if you can go to your local bookstore, your local black bookstore, please do it. Bossy. Shameless plug time. What you got? Um, all I got is this book. Buy my book. Tell your friends <laughs> to buy it. Um, I am. I've, I've been uh, out of commission for two weeks, so I haven't been able to like hit the road like I wanted to. Um, so make me feel better. Buy my book. Uh, have the conversation. I hope that it motivates people to make that phone call to talk to somebody. Um, all I really want um, is for people to see themselves and to see that there's a way. I'm on a path to getting better and, and figuring out what better looks like for you mm -hmm. and, and walking towards that. So that's all I really want. Um, hopefully somebody will buy it and it'll be on your TV in two or three years. But um, for now, just buy the book. And no. thank you for having me. I'm really, this is amazing. No, I, I really appreciate it, boss. And whenever you write another book, you are always <laughs> welcome in this space. Thank you. Um, you know, this is an oh, this is an open space. If you just want to kick it, yeah. <laughs> like, shoot, bring me to Alabama State. No, like for real, we'll do this like, live. On, yeah, on some like on some real like. Honestly, I would love to read this book with some students. So what I'm going to do, I make a promise. Um, I work next door to the um, counseling department, and I'm really close friends with the director of the counseling department. Um, Shout out to, to Chris Johns. If if that is the most compassionate black man that I've ever seen, we have lost three students at Alabama State to gun violence, one to suicide, oh. two that were shot, two that were shot in, in, you know, senseless gun violence. And I just have to say that Mr. Johns and his team in that counseling department didn't just open their doors because somebody got murdered, but they opened their doors before that and they have just done amazing work any student i actually had a student today that was like i don't i want to change my major but i suck at math mm -hmm. and i was like he was a freshman and i was like dude you're not even taking your core classes yet but here's the thing i want you to go talk to a professor that teaches in that major I want you to talk to a student that's majoring in that, that's right now an upperclassman. And then I want you to go talk to a counselor because your mental health and whether you can handle that type of yes. teacher, if you can't handle math in that, type of, in that type of coursework, and if it's going to affect your mental health, then you need to talk to about, you need to talk to somebody about that going forward. As a person who works in career services, I am really big on talking about mental health in my office. And I love being up Mr. Johns because the work that Mr. Johns and his team does is invaluable. Like, and I, I have seen tr like transformative work happen in young black men and young black women's lives by going into that department. Counseling mm -hmm. is free on your college campus, ladies and gentlemen, use it because look, therapists are fucking expensive and, and insurance can, and and insurance can only pay so much all right guys sorry we got disconnected but we're back
Yes. Um, but just what we were saying, I'm going to make sure that I connect you with, uh, I'm going to talk to Mr. Johns about this book, uh, give him a copy, tell him to read it, um, and see if we can, uh, one, get some copies in the bookstore, because we sell a lot of books. Uh, Black authors in the bookstore currently. Um, Todd Nisi Coates, The Water Dancer, is currently mm. in the bookstore right now. And um, I had a chance to buy because it, it was 30% off and it just came out. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to make sure that we can get that inside the bookstore and see if we can like do something around um, any of our psych majors, any of our, um, I want to say, well, what's the word that I'm thinking for? Uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, um, not child protective services. I cannot remember. Um, not council majors. Jesus, I can't remember what those people are called. Um, <laughs> just got a psych majors. Not psych psych majors and um social services. I can't remember social work. Social work majors. I think it would be important for social work majors to read this. Um, as well, just because the work that they kind of deal in, they deal with a lot of people with trauma. Um, I actually have a friend that's getting her master's in social work right now at um, uh, Clark Atlanta University, um, and she's finding herself interacting with a lot of people when she's interning in spaces that deal with mental health, um, and she's a Black queer woman that deals with mental health as well with her own personal battles and struggles, and um, I feel like this book is like necessary. It it is important as the 1619 project right now. That's you know getting a lot of love. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm bigging you up right now. I mean, because you deserve all the gas, no breaks. So <laughs> no breaks, <laughs> no breaks. But no, like seriously, if I can work it out, I will talk to Mr. Johns um, in this this coming semester, and then hopefully in the spring. Let's see if we can bring it to Alabama State because I think this would be great um, to have a bunch of students there and then we can have a podcast. We can talk about it um, and bring it back and it'd be college while black. Um, and we circle that back. And I, I think it would be great. I think um, people, this is, like I said, this is a necessary read for anybody. Um, doesn't matter whether, if, whether you've ever confronted your mental health issues, whether you're confronting them right now, whether you've ever had a question about it. Um, yeah. it's something that you need to read. Um, and, and I hope also that it, that it helps people understand the, uh, uh, the folks in their lives that they've dismissed or, 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 or thrown away, um, because of their mental health and not understanding just how complicated these things present. So that's, that's my, my major hope that people start talking to each other a bit more about it. Absolutely. But once again, boss, I love you so much. <laughs> oh, I love um, you. Thank you. No, You're like my little brother now because because Pat, Patrick's my big brother. Yeah, look, Patrick's everybody's <laughs> big brother because he's old as shit. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell him you said that. He's going to hear this and he's going to be like, You're not supposed to call me old. And he's probably going to fight me now. Probably can't stay in it no. Uh, <laughs> I'm not revealing his age, um, <laughs> but it's okay. No, Patrick, I love you. Um, this interview and the reading this book would not be possible without Patrick, the first supporter, um, the first celebrity supporter of the book club, uh, outside mm -hmm. of the countless others, Jamila Lamou, April Rain. Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, I can go all the way down the line. Thank you to my A1 Day Ones that supported us. 
you know, almost three years ago when we started this thing and then we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. Um, thank you so much. Um, and we will be hearing, you'll be hearing from me soon. I'm going to put out those interviews we did at NAACP convention back in Detroit. So you guys can hear those as well. Um, and next book, Casey Gerald, there will be no miracles. See you guys soon. Uh, love you guys. And all right. <laughs> safe travels. Be safe, bossy. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Reading While Black. Thank you guys for tuning in. Like I said, I know that it's been a while, but it's really great to get some content out there. Um, please, if you have not picked up Bossy Ickpeas, I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying. You need to pick this book up. If you are an advocate of mental health, um, if you're a person struggling with any type of mental illness um, or living or dealing with this in real time this is this book is for you if, if you're a person who has contemplated you know going to see a therapist obviously we are very pro therapy on this podcast but I really do encourage you to read this book as well it's really done a lot for me in my journey um, our next book will actually be there will be no miracles by Casey Gerald um, we will start reading in December, but make sure you pick up as soon as you can. want to give you guys a chance to pick this book up early so you guys can go ahead and get your noses into it and really get a chance to start reading this book. And I'm going to try to do something different and actually do a bi-weekly podcast um, where we can tune in into the middle of the month, try to give you guys a little something, and then around the end of the Christmas year, we'll have that interview ready for you with Casey. Casey's really excited to sit down with us. Casey Gerald comes to our Fractured Times as an unequivocally unique witness whose life has spanned seemingly unbridgeable divides. His story begins at the end of the world, Dallas, New Year's Eve, 1999, when he gathers with the congregation of his grandfather's black evangelical church to see which of them will be carried off. His beautiful, fragile mother disappears frequently and mysteriously for a brief idol. He and his sister live like boxcar children on her disability checks. When Casey, following in the footsteps of his father, a gridiron legend who literally broke his back for the team, is recruited to play at football at Yale, he enters a world he never dreamed of. The anteroom to secret societies and success on Wall Street in Washington and beyond. But even as he attains the inner sanctums of power, Casey sees the world crushes those who live at its margins. He sees how the elite perpetuate the salvation stories that keep others from rising. And he sees most painfully how his own ascension is part of the scheme. There Will Be No Miracles Here has the arc of a classic rags to riches tale, but it stands the American dream narrative on its head. If you live as we are is destroying us, it asks, how would it mean to truly live? Intense, insanitary, shot through the sly humor and quiet fury. There Will Be No Miracles Here inspires us to question and even shatter and reimagine our most cherished myths. So guys, make sure that you guys pick this book up. I'm really, really excited to read this. Casey is one of my favorite Twitter follows as well. 
Um, and also, speaking of Twitter follows, make sure that you follow us at, at @readingwildbok. That's also on Instagram. That is at @readingwildbok. You can also follow me at Dr. TGIF. That's D R T G I F. I'll be putting out more information about the next upcoming book. Um, as always, remember to shop at your local bookstore and support them where you can. Um, make sure that you guys pick up Casey's book as soon as possible, and we will tune in to you next time. Please come listen to us and listen to any old stuff. And you guys got any book suggestions, please put them in the DMs or put them in the mentions, and we'll be back with you soon. All right. 